whatever S word he could at the Trump wall. collapses in an ambulance called. That's what this is called. That he could fail upwards all the way to becoming the most powerful man in the world. But it's not working right now. And it's led to a bunch of failures in the legal system, in the political system, and critically with his own base that are saying loudly and clearly that they are sick and tired of this SOB and that he, on this Saturday evening, held a pathetic rally in an empty stadium. Uh -huh. And this is connected to the fact that he can't get away from his lies. And now, in the most desperate thing he's ever done, he has never been this petty because his event failed tonight. He spent so many hours tonight attacking Ron DeSantis to get revenge in his own mind, but doing it in the most silly way possible. And we're going to get to that. But we have to talk about the three broad themes. First, Donald Trump is struggling in so many ways, but the biggest struggle for him politically is that everyone's bored of him. Does the DeSantis team know what they need to do here? Is there is there any inclination to get in the ring? Well, so far, again, uh, what DeSantis has done um, is sort of say, for lack of a better term, scoreboard, right? He hasn't taken on Trump directly, but he has sort of very clearly said, look, I did what Trump, with, again, without naming Trump, what he could not do. I won. Look at my margin in Florida. Look at some of those counties in Florida, like Miami-Dade, um, that I won. And by how much, What's where Hillary Trump Clinton said? beat Donald Trump in 2016. I, mean, I am a winner. And he so, he again, he is so precious and unwillingness to directly you know, social, put, put on his gloves and take Trump on as a fighter. But what a lot of these Republican experts, including a number who have uh, done focus groups and research and polling among some of these Republican primary voters that someone like DeSantis would need to get, is that you can sort of, they think, the most effective messaging this time in 2024 uh, for a Republican against Trump in a Republican primary is to sort of come at him a little bit from, from disappointment. So say, look, he was a good president. He did a lot of good things. He had a lot of good ideas, but he didn't make complete all of his promises. He said he was going to build a war at the southern, uh, a wall at the southern border, and he didn't. He said Mexico was going to pay for it. And it didn't. He said he was going to win in 2020, and he didn't. And and so sort of make the argument that he was good, I like him, his time has passed, it's time to move on to someone who is similar to him policy-wise, but without all of that baggage and chaos and controversy that these voters found, and even Trump supporters found, so fatiguing and exhausting by the end. <laughs> Like, you know, the, the, everyone was talking about how there was going to be this growing backlash against Trump and the GOP. And there's some of that. You know, there's always been a very small, always over-exaggerated, if we're being honest, but a very small, like, never-Trump, anti-Trump, former Trump constituency. They've always been there. They frankly get a lot of attention, maybe more than they merit, but they've been there. But the bigger danger to Trump was less that the Republican Party voters we're going to start actively hating him. I don't think they're ever going to hate him, but that they get bored of him, tired of him, maybe still admire him in an abstract sense, but see him as the tired old man next door who they just don't want to see all that much anymore. You know what I mean? They like the idea of him, but not how he, how he is now. 
And that clip really demonstrates it. And it shows why these events are failing. And it shows why he's la launching such vicious attacks against DeSantis, who, again, is just as evil as he is. But the reason Trump is attacking him is because he's seen as young and exciting to the Republican base. I don't see it. DeSantis does not seem exciting to me in, in the least. But the point is, Republicans see him as exciting and as young and as new. Everything Donald Trump isn't. And this also applies, we're going to get to the attacks on DeSantis, but you can't separate the, the politics from the legality. It, you, it also shows that Donald Trump's lying isn't working anymore. And we have one of the J6 committee members, the chairman of the committee, saying that, you know, for years Donald Trump lied and gotten away with it, but now it's not working. Uh, well, uh, no, Ollie, we stand behind our, our work. Uh, we had uh, very professional people. Uh, that we employed to do the work. Uh, our committee, as you know, uh, in its own right, had stellar members who uh, gave of their time. Uh, some <laughs> sacrificed their careers to participate. And so what we have uh, is a body of work uh, that Megan, anyone get could arrested. Uh, review, uh, obviously, and they're in the process of doing it. But more importantly, as you know, some of the people who are now reviewing it had an opportunity to participate with the committee, but they chose not to. Uh, Leader McCarthy, now Speaker McCarthy, McCarthy, took his people off the committee and wouldn't allow them to participate mm -hmm. in the process. So now uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, the fact that the person tasked with the responsibility was one of those people we identified as sharing and giving tours to the Capitol at times that the Capitol was not supposed to have people giving tours. So uh, we'll see. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's um, part of this misinformation that's being put out uh, uh, by the Speaker's office and obviously with another network. So we'll see. Uh, we stand by our work as a committee. Uh, we feel very proud of it. Uh, I think based on the reaction that we've gotten uh, overall, uh, people saw with their own their own eyes what happened. And so it's very difficult for someone to say, well, what you saw with your own eyes mm -hmm. is in fact what really happened. You have to listen to me so I can tell you what you saw with your own eyes. I just, I just see the American people as being better than that. Like, you know, he continues to push this narrative with J6, and it works on the cult of the cult, but with the moderate voter, the, the swing voter, they saw what happened on that day. And there's no way the Republicans are going to get around it. And there's a reason why the Tucker Carlson tapes, which again, that was a Trump-Tucker-McCarthy collab. Like, Donald Trump, I don't care if he worked on it directly, that was Donald Trump's fingerprints all over what Tucker did. That was a Trump-Tucker effort to rewrite J6 history, and no one bought it. No one talked about it. Fox News largely ignored their own coverage. Did you see anybody else talking about that on Fox? Not really. And the reason they ignored it is because it was unpersuasive, and frankly, it was embarrassing. And they're not going to attack Tucker over it, obviously. That's a bit too much. But they're definitely going to ignore it. And it's a sign that just no one's buying the BS anymore. No one's buying it. And this is why he's in legal trouble, too. Because one of the narratives they're trying to push, some legal experts seem open to it, but by and large, the, the thing they're trying to push without success is that the, the, the looming 
uh, Alvin Bry case is is dead on arrival because Michael Cohen is a bad slash biased witness. But many legal experts are saying, ironic as it is, being a former you know henchman of Trump and being admired in the scandals of Trump maybe makes him the perfect witness. If they were to indict the former president, he would be a big part of this case. Uh, as it has been widely reported, we know he is a convicted liar. But you pointed out correctly that plenty of times cooperating witnesses have complicated pasts, previous convictions. But I also want to ask you, I mean, in addition to being a convicted liar, for the past five years, mm -hmm. Michael Cohen has uh, run to every camera available to disparage his former boss. Is that going to be a problem if he is put on the witness stand? Um, it may or may not be a dispositive problem for conviction, but it certainly gives a lot of ammunition for the defense attorneys to weigh into him in terms of his bias, for one thing, as well, of, of course, as his credibility. Anytime you have a witness who has made a lot of prior statements, it gives... Don't buy solar panels. Seriously. There is a very good reason why we're saying this. If you're thinking about buying solar panels, gives the defense some fuel to go after them. And Cohen, as you point out, has been doing nonstop talking on this point, begging for the prosecution to happen. So he'll experience some tough cross-examination. I think on the facts, his timeline has been pretty consistent, though, and he obviously has had a lot of experience testifying under oath even in Congress. So I think he should hold up well with that. Okay. Now we and it notes there, like, yeah, there are some technical questions. But again, the, the S, let's think of the estimates Trump wrote. Uh, throwing the same old big lies to the base. They used to eat it up. Now they're spitting it out. Throwing the same old big lies about J6 and no one's buying anymore, even less than usual. And now throwing the things that everyone's rigged against me and everything's biased against me. It's not going to work with Cohen because, you know, he, he went to jail for Trump. Like, he already did his time. Yes, I, I people understand that, like, he might have some motive for revenge, and can you blame him on a human level? But he's not facing any more criminal penalties. It's very different than when you got somebody who, you know, has been uh, charged and pleads guilty to uh, avoid prison <laughs> or take a reduced sentence or, or take a reduced fine or get out of jail and they're already in there to, 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 to get out sooner. Then that person has a direct motivated reason to lie. Cohen's already did the time he's going to do. He's already done it. He has no more reason to lie. You know what I mean? The, the, there's only a downside for him lying, which is perjury and going back to jail. Somebody who could avoid a 10-year prison sentence is willing to risk it and lie and get perjury because what's, what's perjury on top of the, you're, you know, going to prison for 10, 15 years, right? You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. Cohen doesn't have that reasoning. And as noted there, because he's already had to go to congressional testimony and he's already done a lot of this and he is a trained lawyer. I believe he's been disbarred, but I believe he is a trained lawyer. He is a good witness. None of this is working. So Trump holds an event tonight. It fails miserably. He grumbles, goes back to his Mar-a-Lago whatever. I don't even know where he is right now. I assume he's stewing away in his Mar-a-Lago bedroom. And he spends like two hours tonight, guys, ranting about the fact that people think DeSantis' book is selling good. That's how petty it is. Donald Trump, when his rallies are failing so badly and his campaign is failing so badly, this is what he complains about. He will talk about polls showing him winning. 
But if he was actually confident in those polls, he wouldn't be attacking the book sales of the guy running in second vis-a-vis -vis him. And it says here, Some in the fake news are falsely stating that Ron DeSantimonious' book is doing as well as Letters to Trump, my new book. This is fake news, in that Letters doesn't even come out until April 25th. Ron has groups buying his book in order to inflate sales, and in fact, on the first day, his book was already 30% discounted. Letters to Trump has much different pricing, and is a coffee table book. The so-called stars corresponded with me. You'll love it. Pre-order at this link. And what he won't tell you is two things. One, no reputable publisher will work with Trump. I've talked about this before. He has had book deals rejected through all of the big five or six publishers. This is a publishing house launched by Donald Trump Jr. in part because Daddy couldn't find anybody else to publish his books. But the point is, whether or not Ron's book is selling good or not, apparently it is, but like, you know, there can be finagling where groups buy books, that does happen. It happens, the Democrats, Republicans do. It's a thing in political book sales. But let's just say, whether or not DeSantis' book is selling good, Donald Trump is running for president. Facing years in prison. His rallies are failing. He used to be president. He could forever, he could, he used to be the most powerful man in the world. There's only like three or four other people in the world alive right now. That could, there's Jimmy Carter, there's Bill Clinton, there's Bush Jr., there's Obama, there's Biden, and then there's him. There's like the six men in the world that can say that. And he spends his nights complaining about the other guy's books, maybe selling good compared to his books. This is a broken man. With a broken rally set. I don't know if he comes back from it. No wonder the base is sick and tired of it. sister is turning 16. She's getting her license soon. So I'm on my laptop browsing cars on Carvana. I love that they have a 100% online car buying experience. You can get all the information about your car. Right. Secret weapon to defend Fox sources into spotlight. <laughs> Brian Tyler Cohen. I've got the president and CEO of Media Matters, Angelo Carusone. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Now, Media Matters has filed a complaint uh, against Fox with the FEC. So first, can you explain what happened here and also what you hope to accomplish with the FEC? Sure. I mean, um, basically what happened is, that according to the filings and Rupert Murdoch's own acknowledgments, uh, you know, during deposition, his own sort of validation, he said he did this thing. Basically, uh, in the 2020 election, in the right before election day, so late 20, October 2020, the Biden campaign bought a, you know, a series of advertisements of which some of them were on Fox, which meant that Fox had confidential advertising information. So the nature of the ads, maybe where they were being purchased, when they were being deployed. So it's, it's about essentially ad strategy. Um, and what Rupert Murdoch said he did is that he says that he took the advertisement and he shared it with Jared Kushner, who was not only Trump's son-in-law, but he was also a senior advisor to the Trump campaign. And we filed an FEC complaint because that's illegal. Um, and it's pretty clear. It's not even up for debate. So the law is really obvious here. It says that corporations can't give contributions to these campaigns. So that's the first thing. But um, it says that contributions are not just money that a material thing of value also counts as a contribution. And then the third thing is they've determined over the years that advertising 
information about advertising, an advertising strategy is considered a thing of value. So our FEC complaint lays out what Rupert Murdoch says he did, lays out what the FEC sort of law is, and it says that you know what the, what the FEC needs to do is do their investigation and apply the maximum penalty that's allowable. And what do we hope to accomplish? Well, the, the incredible thing about this is that unless someone actually nudges the FCC for these types of uh, actions, they don't really do it proactively. So um, we were getting the ball rolling, and I think what we're trying to accomplish is one, another small sliver of accountability, but big picture, I, the way I sort of see what's come out of the Dominion filings and all these Dominion revelations is that it doesn't just begin and end with the defamation about Dominion. I, I see this as sort of the beginning of a cascading series of consequences for Fox, for the Murdochs, um, and this is just another layer of that cascade. Angelo, Fox will likely point to the press exemption as their defense for this. Uh, why doesn't that apply here? <clears throat> it doesn't apply here for a couple reasons. The clearest example, and this has also been determined, that um, this is one, not a public action. Uh, this was confidential information. So it's not that they were reporting on the ads or, or doing anything in their news capacity. They were acting in their corporate capacity when they took confidential information and shared it exclusively with the campaign. So, you know, there's other parts of the law that are really technical and convoluted that also sort of undermine that. But big picture is that the press exemption doesn't apply. Um, and that's likely what they will point to. They'll say, and, and I, I think it's important to consider this press exemption piece too, because they're making this argument it, broadly in their defamation case, and it, they seem to think that because they call themselves a news operation, that because they, even if they were a news operation, which they're not, but they seem to be making the, the argument across the board in their defense of Dominion, in this FEC issue, that because they would purport to do news, they get to basically break the law, break the rules, and the rules don't apply to them. And that's that's simply not true. You can be a news network and still defame and still engage in slander uh, and still say things that you're liable for. And the same thing here. You can be a, a purported news operation and still take confidential information and offer an illegal contribution to a campaign. And I think that's the ultimate irony here is that this whole time Fox is hiding behind this claim of newsworthiness. But in reality, the only reason any of this was actually newsworthy, so to speak, is because they were putting this stuff in the news. They were putting these lies in the news. So it's kind of like this circular logic where they just they they like introduce these lies into the cycle and then point to the fact that these lies are in the cycle as evidence that they can continue uh, uh, reporting on them. Um, well, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, the one thing I, I would say, sorry, just on that point, is that in, Rupert Murdoch agrees with you. Um, and in fact, uh, during the deposition, he acknowledged that uh, his his network wasn't just providing a platform for others to talk about this, which would, you know, which is what a, in theory a news channel would do, and that would help their defense. Um, he actually went so far as to say exactly what you did, which is that his host, his channel, endorsed the lies. They were promoting them, that they were more than just providing a platform, and they were active participants in distributing them. What enforcement ability does the FEC have if Fox is found to have violated FEC law as a result of, of, of uh, this complaint here? Like, What's the best case scenario for us in terms of what can happen to Fox? So, I mean, big picture, you know, it, it depends. It, what's incredible about this is that there's no clarity as to what the penalty could be because what ends up happening is they do an investigation. We don't know um, how much information was shared. We know that Rupert Murdoch talked about sharing 
a this advertisement and the other piece of it is what was described as confidential debate information um and beyond that what ends up happening is the fec they sort of unpacks this they get a full scale of what was actually involved how much information was shared and then they do a second piece which is to uh to value it so they say how much if you were to pay for this uh would you spend would you spend millions would you spend yeah. a couple thousand dollars and then they essentially use that as their baseline to then assess the penalty and they would do some multiplier depending on the value what i would say is that you, you don't need to be a political down. scientist or a media expert to know that um a few weeks before an election a now presidential election having the inside scoop on what your opponent is going to run in their advertisements and when they're going to run them and how they're going to run them um is awfully valuable uh and so uh you know the penalties could be significant but i also think more important than that and this is the part that i think really is worth keeping in mind here with all this dominion stuff is that everything here is so explosive. All the information we're hearing about the host, all this stuff, even with this illegal contribution thing, that's one sliver. This is only about, we, we only have a keyhole view into what Fox has been doing behind the scenes. We're only looking at what they did in relation to Dominion and the election. So what I would say is the FEC would, could, in theory, uncover so many other illegal contributions. And I think that's always been the case with Fox. The corruption is always much more deep once you start to peel back the layers. The only reason we know any of this is because they're contending with a $1.6 billion lawsuit, but this stuff has been going on forever. I mean, we know what Fox is just based on these behind-the-scenes texts right now, and so the idea that this is just like some brand-new phenomenon that just popped up is, is asinine. I mean, this is, totally. this is all the evidence you need that this is what Fox does. We only know about it now because of this lawsuit, but this is, this is why Fox exists as a propaganda arm of the Republican Party. That's exactly right. I mean, in fact, it's it, it literally is. When Rupert Mur uh, when Roger Ailes, who is the co-founder of Fox, wrote his memo describing what Fox News was going to be, um, one of the parts of it was essentially saying that they needed to create a news network, a, cha a cable channel, to make sure that what happened to Richard Nixon, an impeached Republican president, never happens to another Republican president, that another Republican president could never be forced out of office. And that happened, Fox did his job with Trump, right? I mean, they made sure that despite all the consequences, he was able to retain his power during his presidency, um, that is what the two point is. That's what Fox was. It was always designed to be an appendage of the larger of a Republican partisan interest. It wasn't really ever designed to be a news network, and it never operated that way. The irony of that, though, is that they've made this person and Donald Trump, for example, so powerful just by virtue of running defense for him every single chance they get. That now, when you have someone like Tucker Carlson, who, based on his newly revealed text, we know was saying, you know, I can't wait until we get to stop talking about this guy. I hate him with a burning passion. Like, he created Donald Trump. That network created this invincible persona. Um, and so, like, the irony of them complaining that they, that they are forced to talk about this guy who has, like, endless power on the right is just so amazing because Donald Trump wouldn't be Donald Trump without Fox News. Just moving forward a little bit, you know, a couple of years back, uh, you and I did an interview where we discussed Unfox My Cable Box, and that was a way to actually uh, yeah. fight back against Fox. So first, can you explain what that campaign is for those who, you know, didn't watch that interview back, uh, I think it was yeah. 2021, uh, 2021. So, a house or a laptop? Which one do you think is worth more? Well, definitely not the house, because it not only costs millions to buy,
21. So the dirty secret about Fox and why they seemingly are able to get away with so much of their extremism, their white genocide promotion, all of the lies, is that um, the dirty secret is that they don't need commercials. So because you don't need advertising, um, they don't have to think about whether or not their products are going to appeal to advertisers, which is how most TV channels make their money. Um, they could have zero dollars in ad revenue, and they would still have a 90% profit margin. And the reason for that is that Fox News is the second most expensive channel on everybody's cable bill. Um, ESPN is number one, which makes sense. Um, but Fox News being the second most, almost like as if you almost as much as you would pay for like an HBO, um, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and the way that that happened is about a decade ago. Fox decided to sort of the way they leverage their audience to get them to you know drive and in, in, infect our politics. They whip their audience up into a frenzy, and their audience actually lobbies cable companies. They think they're doing it to protect Fox, but actually Fox is secretly raising everybody's cable bill. Um, and so over the years, they've slowly become super expensive. And what that basically boils down to is two things: one, guaranteed revenue. It doesn't matter how many people watch their channel, how many advertisers they get; they will always get a set amount of money because. It's guaranteed to come from the cable companies. And two, we all have to pay for it. If you have cable, you pay for Fox News. Um, and right now, they uh, they get about $2.30 to $2.50 a month from everybody in the country that has cable. That's 90 million people. Um, that's a lot of revenue. Uh, and so what Unfox and Cablebox was designed to do was to say, look, cable companies, one, why are you making all of us overpay? Not just pay, but overpay for Fox News. Fox News is probably two to we're paying two to three times market rate for Fox, um, and if, if that would change a lot if they were just getting paid the market rate. So the campaign was designed to just do as Fox does these negotiations to leverage the fact that there are consumers, way more consumers. There are 90 million customers, 87 never watch Fox, three million watch Fox. Everybody's paying for it to say, hey, stop raising our bill. Don't make us pay the Fox fee. And when we talked, Fox was gearing up to do renegotiations. But obviously, what they didn't have at the time was they didn't have their renewals yet with the NFL. And the COVID was still sort of like out there. So they had all these considerations. And they signed a bunch of extensions. And um, we got a bunch your your audience signed up. A lot of people signed up and we hadn't had a chance to have a fight until recently, just a couple months ago. And we actually had our first big fight uh, over a renewal fee with Fox uh, right before Christmas. And so how'd that go? It uh, did not go very well for Fox. Um, and uh, the company was DirecTV. Uh, and there were 13,000 DirecTV customers through the Unbox My Cable Box campaign that called DirecTV in the 24-hour period where it mattered the most. Fox was threatening to turn off access to a bunch of high-profile sports at the time. And uh, they, they lost. DirecTV said, no, we're not going to budge. Uh, we, are, you, we, are, we are getting more calls from non-Fox people, our customers, telling us that they don't want to pay the Fox fee. Because Fox didn't just want a renewal. Fox wanted to go up by another 70 cents to a dollar. I mean, they really are getting trying to get big increases here. Um, and it's the first time ever that the Murdochs and Fox ever lost a renewal fight. Um, it, if you just look at what the impact is, like put money on it, somewhere between four and $450 million of guaranteed revenue that they were hoping to get was just gone because of the work of the people that were participating in the Fox by Cable Box campaign. And just as one more little like thing, because I, I really just want to note that is that when we talked, 
your audience, that, that interview had generated like probably the single largest concentration of signups to the Unfox by Cable Box campaign. So it, it is especially important for the people that are that are your your viewers and your regulars to know that they made a really big difference. Um, and we don't waste people's time. We don't spam them. Like basically, we only emailed the people that signed up that said they had Direct TV. Like we weren't trying to even like cook the books or manipulate the numbers. We always said, "Look, tell us what cable provider you have or your family has." When the renewal and the renegotiation comes up, we'll send you instructions on what to do and when it's going to matter the most. And if you do it, we promise it'll work. That's awesome. And it's really like cool to know that, that you know, there's so many of these campaigns where you just kind of feel like you're shouting into the ether and that nothing actually comes from it. But, you know, a lot of people signed up for that. That's one of those few videos that I've done that kind of stays evergreen. And I'm constantly getting people commenting on that and saying, we just signed up, we just signed up. So to, to know that, that there's like some tangible impact from that, uh, is is pretty cool. So with that said, I mean that campaign is obviously still going. We'll put the link yeah. to unfox my cable box in the post description of this video. Um, but also, when is the next negotiation on carriage fees? <laughs> because that's, so, uh, that's going to be the big question that people are going to be wondering so here. That is, and this has actually got a really funny answer. So in theory, it should be in April, um, and it should be Verizon. Uh, but I have a feeling that may not happen. Maybe it will. And the reason why I laughed is because April is when the Dominion trial for Fox is going to start. I'm not sure they want to do renegotiation with Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson are on the stand. Um, maybe, but my hunch is that they might try to kick the can a little bit, but maybe they'll try to speed it up and get it over with. But if all goes according to plan, it'll be sometime in April. And what's nutty about this is this stuff has always been very hard to sniff out. It's always done in sort of secret, very fast. You know, nobody likes their cable company for a reason, you know, and um, there's, but in this case, they are an important part of this because they are the single biggest enablers. Look what happened with One American News when they lost their cable providers. They really lost their, their ability to be destructive because they didn't get that revenue. Fox is in a similar position, and they're obviously weak right now, not just because of the public pressure, but their own audience is kind of mad at them. So there's a unique moment here. So if it happens, it'll be April. Um, if not, it'll be shortly thereafter. But just for everyone's awareness, the, all of these renewals have to happen over the next eight months. Um, you know, they just they don't have the ability to push the timeline anymore. They, they, they're run out of their ability to get extensions. And even today, Lachlan Murdoch was giving a speech in San Francisco and he was talking about subscriber fees, carriage fees, their renewal plans and, and really trying to get you know, investors, big shareholders, the industry to, to sort of feel like Fox News is confident about these renewals, even though so far it hasn't been going so well for them. Yeah. And I, I would just like reiterate again for those watching, if you recognize how destructive Fox has been and will continue to be just, you know, take a few minutes to just sign up for this. And when that email comes through, depending on who your cable provider is, just take the take the moment that it takes to just make a quick call. I mean, these things obviously matter. And uh, if we have more people calling from our side than they do defending them on their side, then, then that'll make a, a big impact here in terms of these uh, renewals and carriage fees. Angelo, do you think that this lawsuit will have any impact um, as far as these carriers go? Like, do you think that Fox's garbage behavior basically gives these carriers more leverage to be like, you know, screw you, we're not paying you on par with ESPN just to spew right-wing disinformation to people. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head here. Uh, you know, when we were gearing up for this campaign, too, we did a lot of work talking to um, cable uh, executives, former cable executives who've done these negotiations. And the one through line, no matter which entity we talked to, was that they all dislike the Murdochs, not on a personal level, but because... 
the Murdochs lie about them too. Um, they always run these campaigns called Keep Fox, and they say, you know, that your cable company is trying to censor Fox News and take it away, which they never are. Um, but they lie and get their audience whipped up into a frenzy. And look, these are all business people. At the end of the day, this is about money for them. And the Murdochs have always been able to leverage their, you know, their audience and use a bunch of other heavy-handed tactics to force these cable companies to pay a lot more than they wanted to. And so in a way, this is a chance for some comeuppance where the cable companies, you know, everyone will use it in their interest, just like the MyPillow guy. You know, he runs ads on Fox News now, but he's getting a, a, a better rate because he knows that there's very few advertisers and then they need him more than ever. So it's just, everyone will always take a little bit of leverage. And for this, this is a, a pretty significant piece of leverage. And, uh, and and I do think that cable companies, you know, everyone's cord cutting. So like they have to, they're sort of racing the clock too. And, you know, they have a really strong reason to do it. And that public pressure against them hurts. And the other thing is dropping the veneer of journal of journalism, you know, when it feels like you're doing this against something that everyone is now calling a political operation, it does make it a lot easier because they can't it, it can't seem like they're punishing a news outlet. Now, that's always been a sensitivity. Right. That's a great point. And, and we know based on uh, the email that Brett Baer sent out, for example, when he said, oh, we should just you know, we forget about the blowback. We should just pull Arizona from the Biden column and put it into the Trump column. I mean, Brett Baer, Brett Baer is their straight news guy, right? Like, yeah. and so if, if that veneer of legitimacy is gone, then what does Fox have left to point to? If, if Brett Baer is the same as, like, Sean Hannity when it comes to this stuff, then you have nothing to hide behind in terms of calling yourself a legitimate news outlet. That's exactly uh, right. That's it. Well, obviously a big problem here, and this is just more on the political side for you, but a big problem here is that you want Fox viewers to know that they're being lied to, but the gatekeepers to reaching those Fox viewers are the liars themselves. And so have you found that there's any effective way to get through to these people who are otherwise like being shielded by the Sean Hannity's and Tucker Carlson's and Laura Ingram's and Maria Bartiromo's? So, I mean, the truth is, there's a very large segment of the Fox audience. It's not that just they want to be lied to, it's that they've made a decision that the ends justify the means. Because for them, Fox lies for political power for some greater purpose. And so for them, it's like, yeah, of course they lie because we're trying to win, right? And so if that's what it takes to win, fine, I'll take some lies. That said, there's a difference between lies and betrayal. And some of the things that we've seen in these messages are betrayals to the audience, to the people, to the ideology. And it is really hard to reach them, that they are in a bubble. But what I would say is that some of these betrayals, and it's already beginning to filter out. So not, you know, Tucker really ripping on Trump. It's not just expressing outrage about one instance, but really basically showing his true colors about how much he didn't like him or, you know, how much of these foxholes are riding their audience and complaining about how their audience is forcing them to cover certain things. Um, what ends up happening, though, is that other right-wing posts, other personalities are pointing to this as evidence. Because, you know, remember, these are all media figures. They're competing for audience, right? And so what there are people right now, including former Fox hosts, that are talking about how Fox News actually hates the Fox News audience. And so they're going to end up being the messengers for this. And I'll make one more point. This, all we have right now is written text. Right. Um, we had that before the Alex Jones trial, too. But when Alex Jones was on stand and there was that video and that visual of him talking about these things, it reached a much different audience. To me, I, I want the Fox audience to see this now and to hear it. But what I would just note is that there will be a trial. 
there will be Tucker Carlson on stage having uh, on on stand having to account for the things he said. Um, and that stuff is going to be a lot harder to keep outside the bubble and away from Fox people as well. So I do think it's going to be a little bit of a slow burn. There are a lot of, a lot of them that won't care, but I, I, the point of an echo chamber and a bubble is that it's a bubble. And once it bursts, yeah, you still have all the consequences. It's still a bit of a mess, but it, it doesn't create that same insulation. And I, I would say I've been doing this a long time that, that this does feel like a real significant you know, fulcrum and pivot point um, in in our in our democracy in our in our media culture. Well, on that exact point, and we'll finish up with this. You know, Fox has long had a credibility crisis with people outside of that bubble that you were referring to. Do you think that this time has any staying power in terms of it being different, or or at the end of the day, like Fox has always been a propaganda outlet, and just getting this confirmation from these Fox hosts based on their texts isn't actually going to change anything. Like which. How do you think Fox comes out of this? Do you think it's going to be just more of the same and just the people who knew what Fox was are going to continue knowing that's what Fox was? Or do you think that there is some degree of like maybe Fox had plausible deniability before because there was an ever overt evidence like we have now? And so you'd have the other news outlets, the NBCs, ABC, CBSs, kind of like rallying behind them because they had like the occasional Brett Bear. But like now that we know, do you think that there's going to be any difference here? Or do you think it's going to be more of the same? Yeah, so I, I think that, and I am not just saying this because I, I, I feel like I have to. I really believe that this is a, 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 a moment where the assessment of Fox and the language around it will change. Um, and it's going to require additional nudging to make sure that that sticks, that people don't just change what they say, but change what they do, which means you have to start treating Fox the way you treat InfoWars, the way that you treat places that you know are disreputable. So like, and I, and I think the President Biden, before all of this came out, demonstrated that when he didn't, when he didn't do a pre-Super Bowl interview with Fox News hosts, right? So, the, and that was before any of this was revealed. It, it, this, it had started to change. And I'll just give one anecdote. I remember back in 2009, the Obama administration very early on had, they just said that Fox News was a little bit biased for the administration and had more, it, the news media rallied around Fox and just defended them. The same people that were defending Fox News then, the same people, I could point to them, are calling Fox News a political operation today. And that is that is a really big evolution on the part of some of these more established media figures. So yeah, I, I do think that that it will create, it definitely change the way they talk, with make sure it makes sure it, it changes how people interact. In the short term though, I will warn that Fox News is gonna burn brighter and hotter. Um, that they, we, that's the other part of the takeaway here is it's very clear that they do not have a path forward in, as a business unless they burn brighter and hotter and try to capture and keep and do everything possible to keep that audience. And so they will be scarier, but in a way that's going to help our, our case. I don't want that to happen because the consequences are real, but Fox is going to burn brighter and hotter. And I, I do think the rest of the media it will start to see and talk about Fox News differently. Yeah, well, and I think it's important to remember, too, that they're not doing this from a position of strength. They're going to be doing this from a position of weakness, and that's just a testament to the fact that, you know, they are uh, against the ropes here, and that these revelations are hurting them, and hopefully with these uh, with these carriage fees fights that they're going to be contending with in the next eight months, uh, that can have, like, a real tangible impact here. So, Angelo, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for your participation.
I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Video has surfaced of Donald Trump bragging about legislation that he introduced which repealed critical regulations which would have prevented the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Let me explain. By now I'm sure you've heard about the collapse of SVB or Silicon Valley Bank. At the time of its failure, it had over $200 billion in assets. It referred to itself as the innovator in the tech space, the financial partner of innovation economy. It banked a lot of venture capital companies, a lot of tech companies. And just so you have a sense of comparison, the $200 billion in assets that SVB had at the time of its failure, how does it compare to, say, a bigger bank like J.P. Morgan Chase? J.P. Morgan Chase has approximately $3.31 trillion in assets. But nonetheless, SVB was a big player at the time. So what happened to SVB? I think Vox gave a very good analysis here about the good old-fashioned bank run that took place, and this is how it's described. The bank takes deposits from clients and invests them in generally safe securities like bonds. As the Federal Reserve increased interest rates, those bonds became worth less. That wouldn't normally be an issue. SVB would just wait for those bonds to mature. But because there's been a slowdown in venture capital and tech more broadly, and they were uh, significantly, almost primarily banking more than 50% of their client base being from tech, deposit inflows uh, slowed, clients started withdrawing their money, and there was a run on the bank. However, this would have been detected. The vulnerable balance sheet would have been detected under Dodd-Frank regulations, which were rolled back under the Trump administration. Now, there's been video that has surfaced of Donald Trump basically bragging about enacting uh, a new law that would basically repeal the regulation. This video of Donald Trump comes from May 4th, 2018, where he signs into law a, uh, a law that's referred to as the 2018 Economic Growth and Regulatory and Consumer Protection Act. And at the end of the day, it has this name that it actually did the exact opposite and injected a lot more risk. Everything that Dodd-Frank was uh, created to fix, Trump undid those regulations and basically caused this to happen. As New York Times explained, some banking experts pointed out that a bank as large as Silicon Valley Bank might have managed its interest rate risks better had parts of the Dodd-Frank financial regulatory package put in place after the 2008 crisis not been rolled back under President Trump. In 2018, President Trump signed a bill that lessened regulatory scrutiny for many regional banks. Silicon Valley Bank's chief executive, Greg Becker, was a strong supporter of the change, which reduced how frequently banks with assets between $100 billion and $250 billion had to submit to stress tests by the Fed. They essentially avoided stress tests by the Fed and as a result incurred all of this risk and then suddenly failed with this bank run. I'm going to play for you now the video that has surfaced. Midas Touch Network 
broke this story on our social media accounts. This is from May 4th of 2018 with Donald Trump bragging about repealing the key portions of the Dodd-Frank Act that would have stopped this exact collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Play the clip. The legislation I'm signing today rolls back the crippling Dodd-Frank regulations that are crushing community banks and credit unions nationwide. They were in such trouble. One size fits all. Those rules just don't work. And community banks and credit unions should be regulated the same way. And you have to really look at this. They should be regulated the same way with proviso for safety as in the past when they were vibrant and strong, but they shouldn't be regulated the same way as the large, complex financial institutions. And that's what happened. And they were being put out of business one by one. And they weren't lending. Since its passage in 2010, Dodd-Frank has dealt a huge blow to community banking. As a candidate, I pledged that we would rescue these community banks from Dodd-Frank, the disaster of Dodd-Frank. And now we are keeping that commitment and all of the people with me are keeping that commitment. We passed and signed a record number of bills terminating job-killing regulations. In the history of our country, no president, whether it's four years, eight years, or 16 years in one case, has ever passed more regulation cuts. Well, with Donald Trump, there is a video for everything. And as time progresses, we see what a menace he was. Look, every business that he ran before going into office, he crashed. Everything he's touched in his life, he's bankrupted. So it shouldn't shock you that he would engage in policies he has no clue about that would result in these types of crises. From uh, Representative Katie Porter, she posted on her uh, social media, she wrote the following on Twitter, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was totally avoidable. In 2018, Wall Street pushed a deregulation bill that allowed banks like SVB to take reckless risks. It passed even as I and many others warned of the risks. I am writing legislation to reverse that law. S2155, that was the law. S2155 became the Economic Growth and Regulatory Consumer Protection Act, which did the exact opposite, which Trump signed into law. By the way, it was the 115th Congress. Republicans controlled the Senate. Republicans controlled the House of Representatives. So while Trump was saying he's going to come up with a health care plan that's better than Obamacare, and when Trump said that he was going to deliver infrastructure, he did none of those. Instead, they rolled back critical regulations that were part of Dodd-Frank, which would have stopped this from happening. This from The Intercept. Let me read this to you from Ken Klippenstein. He writes, after successfully lobbying for the rollback of new rules applied to Wall Street in the wake of the financial crisis, lobbyists for Silicon Valley Bank immediately began pressing their case further to federal authority that ensures bank deposits in the event of another crisis, according to lobbying disclosures reviewed by The Intercept. The lobbying effort managed to exempt banks the size of SVB 
from more stringent regulations, including stress tests aimed at uncovering the type of weaknesses that led to the bank's implosion last week. Two of the bank's top lobbyists previously served as senior staffers for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who himself pushed for the repeal of significant pieces of the landmark Wall Street reform legislation known as Dodd-Frank. We don't give too much kudos here usually, or we should, but we haven't really highlighted good floor speeches by Senator Dianne Feinstein, the Democrat from California. But in real time, back in 2018, when this law, S2155, was being, uh, the legislation was being circulated in the Senate, she called it. I want to play for you the speech that she delivered on the House floor before it was signed into law where she called it out, where she explained exactly what was going to happen. This video is prescient. This video is incredible. And one thing I just want to say before playing this video for you, though, is the following. Now you have all of these Republicans, all of these Republicans who called for deregulation, who are the arsonists. They are the arsonists. So what do they do now? The very first thing they do is they blame the government. They blame the government that they removed from the regulatory scheme that would have stopped this from happening. The Republicans go, oh, it's Biden's fault. We need the government in. We need the government in now. Bail us out. Bail us out. Bail us out. <laughs> now that they were responsible for the failure that they screwed over working class and middle class Americans, and now they want the bailout. Now they want the bailout. And that's what we repeatedly talk about here at the Midas Touch Network, which is priorities, priorities, which is these MAGA Republicans support the billionaire class. They support the 0.0001% of Americans, the uber ultra billionaires and DECA millionaires, and they try to distract Americans with all of the issues about Mr. Potato Head and woke this, woke that, and pronouns and all of these things while they pass bills that remove re important regulation so they can just greedily steal all of this money and take all of this money. Look, we got to wake up. We got to open up our eyes and see specifically what these MAGA Republicans did before, what they're doing now, and the devastation caused by Donald Trump. So with that said, please watch this video on the pout to play of Dianne Feinstein. It is really important. Play the clip. Mr. President, I rise to discuss S21. Five, five. It's called the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act. Now, you'd think from the title that I would be all for it. But as one who went through uh, the drop in the economy uh, when we were on the brink of collapse, I believe this is a very bad bill. Let me take you back for a moment to that time. Banks were teetering, and over 300 would fail in the next three years. For perspective, only three banks failed in the year of 2007. Unemployment was skyrocketing. We lost $19 trillion in household wealth. Americans lost nearly 9 million jobs. In my state, California, more than 2 million people were unemployed. Three and a half million mortgages were at risk, and nearly 200,000 people filed for bankruptcy. 
Now that the economy has recovered and unemployment has decreased from its high point of 10% during the crisis, I worry that my colleagues have forgotten the magnitude of this crisis. I simply cannot. I remember sitting in caucuses, hearing from our top financial officials about the potential for a total collapse of our economy. Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner testified to the House Financial Services Committee, and I quote, our financial system failed to do its job and came precariously close to failing altogether, end quote. That is not an exaggeration, Mr. President, for those of us that were here, who listened to the economists, who heard what was happening, we feared a total collapse. And personal conversations I had with these economists carried the most dire warnings. We should never get close to that point again. Congress spent more than $400 billion on something labeled TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program, to help stabilize the economy. It was very controversial at the time, but we have since recouped more than we spent on that bank program. Congress then passed the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act in 2010, putting in place policies to prevent another financial crisis, including strong protections on the largest banks. Now, just eight years later, how quickly we forget we are considering loosening these protections. Have we forgotten the lessons from 10 years ago and the devastating consequences for American families? As with any bill we pass, I'm open to looking at how it's been implemented and making adjustments as needed. For Dodd-Frank, I agree that community banks and credit units unions shouldn't be regulated the same way as the largest banks in the country. I'm open to adjusting some of these regulations for them. But this bill simply goes too far. It goes beyond targeted relief for small institutions. The nonpartisan CBO, Congressional Budget Office, says the probability of a large bank failing or another financial crisis will go up if this bill is enacted. You know, I think everything that uh, Senator Feinstein said there, again, this was before the bill was signed into law in 2018. And she called it. She said, we need to reflect on why we have this regulation in the first place. And it's not just regulation on the financial sector, it's regulation, it's safety regulation. It's, it's regulation for our environment. It's regulation for toxic substances. It's regulations that try to stop train derailments. It's regulation that is important for people's safety, for life. That's why these regulations exist. That's why these regulations exist. And you have MAGA Republicans bragging about uh, creating this dystopian vision by just haphazardly removing the regulation. The regulations are rooted in a historical experience about why they are needed in the first place. 
So I just wanted to give you that backstory, explain to you SVB, explain to you uh, the broader implications of how something like that could happen. SVB was uniquely exposed based on its reliance on tech sector deposits, unlike lots of other banking institutions. So it is a unique circumstance there. However, that could have been caught. That could have been prevented. We need to wake up and just stop with this Trump grift, MAGA Republican grift. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing at all. Let's wake up. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1 million subscribers thanks to your support. We are marching to 1 million. Make sure you hit subscribe. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. Wherever you get your audio podcast, search Midas Touch Podcast and subscribe there. All right, now subscribe for free at our YouTube. Let's get to 1 million subscribers this month. Thank you so much. I've been myself. Love this video? Then you'll love the Midas Touch podcast. Listen as my brothers and I break down the latest news and chat with top... Okay, thanks for 72K. Listens to my podcast. Let's listen to the rest of, of this. Oh, this was streamed a month ago, shit. <clears throat> but I didn't finish listening to it, so this is a month ago. This is my main into fake electors in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Colorado. Now let's go to district attorneys after hitting AG. First, let's start with the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis. She's completed her uh, investigation for now before the special grand jury, which was impaneled. The Georgia Superior Court judge from Fulton County, Judge McBurney, was presiding over that special uh, grand jury. That special grand jury does not have the power to criminally indict. They do have the power to prepare a report, the report to recommend criminal indictments, which uh, could be followed or not followed. Um, but at this stage, Phony Willis can criminally indict and do whatever she wants to do right now. So she doesn't have to wait for anything. One of the things the special grand jury requested, though, was to make their report public. I believe Judge McBurney seemed inclined to make it public, but the laws regarding making grand jury reports public versus making special grand jury public is a bit nuanced in Georgia law. So in his order, he's given the uh, Fulton County DA's office and other potential interveners until I think it was January 24th to yeah. uh, brief the issue about whether or not to make it public. But it's a big deal, Popak, right, that this, that this investigation is now done. And we can see, you know, one of the groups she's investigating are these 16 fake electors in Georgia, among others. But indictments there can be happening pretty soon, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Let me just go through the process, though, um, about what happens next. You got the report. McBurney, who used to be the chief judge, stepped down, but he's still supervising uh, this thing. If now, based on the report... Fawny Willis, um, putting aside publication of the report, which I believe is going to happen uh, off the 24th hearing, he's just giving the time for the media and other people involved to oppose. Uh, the media to, who want to release and other people who may want to oppose. She then takes this report and convenes a, a regular grand jury, but she doesn't have to start all over again and bring in all of these live witnesses. 
there, this is a short-circuited process, um, short-circuited in the sense she's been running the grand jury since May. through January, for those that were worried things don't move quickly, they seem to move exceedingly quickly in Fulton County. She's got this thing all wrapped up, and the special grand jury has already been dissolved by McBurney with a stroke of his pen. But she now has the report, and that report's not just like a 10-page term paper that we know from high school. This thing, I'm sure, is a compendium that would rival the one the Jan 6 committee has, has let out. I'm sure it's probably even, could even be larger given all the witness testimony attached to it. She then takes that report and presents it, if she elects to, to a regular grand jury. Reading aloud the testimony, putting in evidence. Trying to convert me into Christianity. Philip Carson on Secrets of the University. Transferred to three different bodies. 
Uh, long before the sinking of Atlantis, Bo was born one of his principal, on one of the principal islands in the city of Kior. He was instructed by the inner elder, by, he was instructed in the elder mysteries by his father, thought me. Now, thought me is Enki. Okay, just leave that you know. Thought me is actually Enki. The keeper of the temple of the, on the island of Unal, Undal, Texas, Postal, I'm sorry. Thoth was taught by the temple mysteries and the path to Amenti, where he received the key to perpetual life. This is where he got the knowledge of actually how to transfer his consciousness into new bodies. Perpetual life. Okay, this is how they became quote-unquote immortal through this, through this method, which became known centuries later as the Fountain of Youth. When Atlantis sank and he and his followers migrated to the land of Kem, now Kem is ancient Egypt before it was called Egypt. The land of Kem is the land of the black people. And founded the Egyptian civilization, over the halls of Atlantis he erected a great pyramid of Giza, and the tablets uh, contained, I'm sorry, and posted one of his secret chambers the, the, uh, the then archaic records of ancient Atlantis, the Emerald Tablets, contain a history of Atlantis and its mechanical and scientific achievements. The manner of, let me stop right there. Above the great, above the Grand Gallery in the Great Pyramid, two years ago, they discovered a hidden chamber. Scientists uh, discovered this, researchers, they did what they call a muon scan, and this chamber is actually there, exactly where you said it would be. And uh, it made international news, if you look it up, hidden chamber above Grand Gallery in the Great Pyramid of Giza, okay? They found it. I always love it when modern technology backs up ancient tablets. The Emerald Tablets, the Emerald Tablets contain a history of Atlantis, its mechanical constitution, in the manner it sank below Atlantis to the, the Atlantean waves. The colonization of ancient Egypt and even to the construction of the Great Pyramid, but their real significance that they contain the keys to the unfoldment of the heavens and the earth and the divine soul of man. These tablets were so written that the words respond to the tuned thought waves, releasing the associated mental vibrations of an exhilarating rhythm in the mind of the reader. Thus, the magnificent wisdom of the author is revealed. A casual read will immediately give glimpse and thrilling beauty of its rhythm. The truth seeker who is willing to give them more intensive study will open avenues to the most intrinsic wisdom. Uh, wisdom of unutterable majesty, uh, majesty and beauty. So basically, it's a phenomenal read. I mean, if you read it, you know, I've read it now 180 times. Uh, and the more you read, the more you begin to understand and realize, the more you begin to see. It's not something you want to read just once. They're very, very, very powerful. Information that you can get about the location of Jesus when he escaped, when he did, well, escaped, but I call it escape, but when he was missing from the modern day Bible, from the age of 12 to 32, you can get it from the Holy, the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. Now, it has to be this cover. There's two books out there that have the same name or similar name. This is the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. I found this one for $650 uh, online on Amazon. Why? Because they don't want you to read the scripture, so it's not in publication. It's very hard to find. Sometimes you get lucky and somebody will put a used order for like 50 or 60 bucks, 150 bucks I've seen before. This one was in pristine condition. So I paid the six fifty for it. When I look at it and read it, I actually use gloves. I only want my, my acid from my fingerprints to get on this book. Okay? But this is a powerful book because once I read this book, it talks about only where he disappeared to. He went to Egypt, uh, and he actually lived in Coptic Cairo to learn the Egyptian mysteries from who? This guy. That's where he went. Now, either he was the son of Thoth, and I really think now looking back that he probably was the son of Thoth. 
Um, that's where he went. So he learned Egyptian mystery. Then he left there and went to Tibet and he went to India to learn mystic arts and Reiki healing with his hands, teaching reincarnation the whole way back. In the Sinai Bible, no crucifixion never existed. Now they found the uh, the book of Jesus' wife, which is the book of Yeshua's wife, which is located in the Harvard Library. And he got married. So this whole thing has been a big farce. You guys have been, not you guys directly, but you know, people have been hoodwinked, they've been tricked, unfortunately. Um, was he an amazing person? Yes. Was he amazing with, a, with an amazing mission and spirit? Yes. I believe that. Was he a real flesh and blood person that actually walked on this planet? In my personal opinion, it wasn't just about this movement of sun and stars and all. I think he really was a person that was here based on the fact that they turned his house into a shrine where he, where he was. And I went and visited that house and had pictures of it. So I believe that he was a real true person, that he was taught in the Egyptian history. And this is why in the New Testament the Bible, if you read my book, you find that his words mimic identically what Thoth was saying 36,000 years prior. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> He's literally quoting Thoth in the New Testament of the Bible. Anywhere you see Jesus speaking, you can find every single verse in the Emerald Tablet. Right, that was mind-blowing for you and me. Okay, um, give me Jesus. Jesus. Buried biblical mysteries of the Holy Land. I don't know, that sounds a little heavy. Hmm. Babylon City. At the center of the world, the concise history of Babylonia, 2000 to 539 BC. I have watched half of that already. The giant who became Pharaoh. Hmm, the short. The giant who became Pharaoh. In the early 1900s, John Garstang, a British archaeologist, made a groundbreaking discovery near Gurja in Upper Egypt, a large mastaba belonging to someone important. Among the finds were relief fragments bearing the name of an unknown pharaoh. Sanic, the first king of the third dynasty and predecessor of Djoser. Inside the tomb, archaeologists found the remains of a man, but something was unusual about them. Upon closer examination, they found that the bones were excessively large. He was 198 centimeters tall, making him 20 centimeters taller than his contemporaries. Even taller than Ramses II, who was only 175 centimeters. Some researchers initially suggested that his impressive size was due to gigantism. However, a new analysis found that he was not suffering from the condition. He was simply a remarkably tall man. In his book, The Making of Egypt, Flanders Petrie noted that Sanic gave a fresh impetus to Kemet and that he was of Sudanese type. South Sudanese people are known to be the tallest men on earth, offering a possible explanation for Sanic's height. Giant who became Pharaoh. In the early 1900s, John Garstang, a British archaeologist, made a groundbreaking discovery near Gurja, in Upper Egypt, a large mastaba belonging to someone important. Among the finds were relief fragments bearing the name of an unknown pharaoh, Sanic, the first king of the third dynasty and predecessor of Djoser. Inside the tomb, Illuminati is an extension of Giant who became Illuminati is an extension of the mystery schools, which started way before Egypt even existed. It was from the land of Kem. And the Emerald Tablet, it starts on Atlantis, the actual island itself. Thoth's dad sends him to the land of Kem. He gets in a ship when he gets out to his barbarians. His job is to bring them to a higher level of civilization. From there, when they get to a certain level, he opens up the mystery schools and he begins to teach these people the higher things, dimensions, technology, quantum physics, all the stuff that they need to know, you know, the universe and everything else, how the things work, even to a higher level talking about even 
manipulating the ether through vibrations and thought. So these mystery schools maintained for many, many years, and they were for invitation only, but they were for enlightenment of the race. Over time, as some of these gods left and disappeared, like Thoth, for example, after he was gone, he became a deity, and many years after he left. And then all of a sudden, the pyramid priests figured out, oh, wow, we can use this as a control method. So that was one of the beginning of, the, of one of the very first secrets. Illuminati is an extension of the mystery schools, which started way before Egypt even existed. It was from the land of Kem. And the Emerald Tab, it starts on Atlantis, the actual island itself. Thoth's dad sends him to the land of Kem. He gets in a ship when he gets out to this barbarians. His job is to bring them to a higher level of civilization. From there, when they get to a certain level, he opens up the mystery schools, and he begins to teach these people the higher things, dimensions, technology. Do you see it? How about now? Okay, how about now do you see it? I saw these incredible ruins when I was looking down this canyon, and I knew I just had to hike to it. I found out that you need a permit to hike in this canyon, so I went and got a permit and then came back to begin my hike. On the way down, there are a lot more ruins to be seen, but my main objective was seeing the ruin that's on the cliff edge. Oh, holy cow. How steep that is. Oh my goodness, let's go over there. Do I dare do it? Oh my goodness, this is crazy. Check out this petroglyph that is directly above the ruin. Is it a symbol for something? I don't know. I don't have any idea on what this structure would have been used for, but what do you think? Do you see it? How about now? Okay, how about now do you see it? I saw these incredible ruins when I was looking down this canyon, and I knew I just had to hike to it. I found out that you need a permit to hike in this camp. Market wizard Larry Benedict is one of the most successful traders you'll ever meet. But he doesn't invest the traditional way. His approach has nothing to do with buy and hold, and it's the opposite of what a broker would tell you. In short, it's a way to trade just one ticker and potentially make all the money you need, no matter what happens in the stock market. I know. It sounds Did these mysterious crystal pyramids cause the Bermuda Triangle disappearances? In 2012, American and French research teams that were studying the Bermuda Triangle noticed a mysterious underground structure rising from the seabed. They soon realized it was a pyramid 300 meters wide and 200 meters tall, larger than the Great Pyramids of Egypt, and interestingly enough, was made of crystal. The semi-translucent crystal pyramid had two large holes at the top of it, moving seawater through it at high speeds, manipulating the currents of the sea. If legend has anything to do with it, Crystal technology was known to be a big part of the Atlantean myth, talking about how it was key to unlimited energy that powered the Atlantean society. And even though you can watch the full video by clicking on the link in the description below, people still speculate that the Bermuda Triangle disappearances were caused by sea monsters and faulty equipment. But after seeing what the crystal pyramids can do, scientists are now asking the question, did these mysterious crystal pyramids cause the Bermuda Triangle disappearances? In 2012, American and French research teams that were studying the Bermuda Triangle noticed a mysterious underground structure rising from the seabed. They soon realized it was a pyramid 300 meters wide and 200 meters tall, larger than the Great Pyramids of Egypt, and interestingly enough, was made of crystal. The semi-translucent crystal pyramid had two large holes at the top of it, moving seawater through it at high speeds, manipulating the currents of the sea. If legend has anything to do with it, 
Crystal technology was known to be a big part of the Atlantean myth, talking about how it was key to unlimited energy that powered the Atlantean society. And even though you can watch the full video by clicking on the link in the description below, people still speculate that the Bermuda Triangle disappearances were caused by sea monsters and faulty equipment. But after seeing There's what the Crystal... Whole video. They found this Have lost city under the Bermuda Triangle. Or a plane flying off the radar, never to be seen again. How about the hundreds of people missing at sea who have never been found? Have you ever considered that a supernatural force lying in wait in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean is the cause? Today, we're looking at the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. Atlantic. Bermuda was known as a magical island long before the Bermuda Triangle legend gained popularity. Early seafarers who were alarmed by the sound of wild pigs and cowbirds on the shore gave the island the nickname the Devil's Island. The Bermuda Triangle myth has its earliest roots in Columbus, who recorded a faulty compass, weird lights, and a flash of flame falling into the water in his logbook. Columbus and other sailors who came after him also came into the dangerous area of the sea now known as the Sargasso Sea. Legends from the past described sailboats that became permanently stuck in a body of calm water, surrounded by seaweed and the wreckage of other ships that had suffered the same fate. At least 50 ships and 20 aircrafts have disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle in the last 500 years, most of them without a trace. There have been no wrecks, no bodies, nothing. It's like they just vanished from existence. Numerous people have disappeared in the allegedly calm waters surrounding the triangle without making any sort of distress call. In one instance, five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers departed Fort Lauderdale, Florida on a routine two-hour training mission at 2.10 p.m. on the afternoon of December 5, 1945. At 4 o'clock, they had their last radio communication. They were never heard from again. The 27 soldiers in the planes vanished without a trace. The planes vanished as if they had flown to Mars, according to the official Navy reports. So how did the ships and aircraft vanish? What happened? There truly is no explanation for all of these disappearances, but sometimes you have to be open to unconventional thinking in order to find an unconventional answer. Sometimes, you have to be open to the fact that the mystery goes deeper than you could have ever imagined. I said I heard there's a pyramid under there. The Bermuda Triangle has been blamed for the loss of ships and planes, but in recent years has found itself accused of something much, much bigger. What if the Bermuda Triangle was responsible for the disappearance of the lost city of Atlantis? <laughs> Plato, a tsunami or earthquake is thought to have caused the city to sink into the ocean. Plato 
said that the alleged Atlantis was a sizable island close to the Rock of Gibraltar that featured a statue of Poseidon, circular walls, and waterways. In his description for the enigmatic underwater kingdom, where the ocean was at the time navigable, for there lay an island larger than Libya and Asia together, in front of the mouth, which you Greeks call, as you say, the Pillars of Hercules. And the travelers of that time could cross from it to the other islands, and from the islands to the whole of the continent over against them, which encompasses the veritable ocean. Tertullian, an early Christian author who thought Atlantis had once existed in the Atlantic Ocean, agreed with Plato, saying that the island would be larger than both Libya and Asia today. But what happened to make Atlantis disappear? <sighs> well, according to legend, Atlantis once belonged to Poseidon, the Greek sea god who met and married Plato, a young woman native to the island. On the island, Poseidon constructed a city, and on a peak in the middle of the city, he erected a palace for Plato. Poseidon eventually divided the island into ten halves, and gave each of the couple's ten children control over one, with their firstborn, Atlas, having the island named after him. Atlantis was a utopia where no one had to work hard, and where a wide variety of delicious foods were grown. For the island, Poseidon had fashioned a stream of hot and a stream of cold water. It had a magnificent culture with magnificent palaces and temples. Gold, silver, and other precious metals were in great abundance with the rulers. According to legend, the people of Atlantis were so significantly more technologically and scientifically evolved than people of today. They claimed to have found the key to unrestricted energy and power, using crystals to channel their power. The Atlanteans were said to have achieved extraordinary feats, such as flying in spaceships like anti-gravity devices, possessing laser-like weapons, talking computers, and even communicating telepathically. The inhabitants of Atlantis enjoyed a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity. Then, things started to change. The gods started mating with people. The Atlanteans developed a need for more than they already had. They made the decision to invade the nations bordering the Mediterranean. Zeus, incensed by the actions of the Atlanteans, produced an earthquake, or possibly a series of earthquakes, which caused Atlantis to submerge under the ocean over the period of one day and one night. But what if the legend was wrong? What if Atlantis was swallowed up by the enigma that is the Bermuda? Academics believe that this utopian kingdom formally covered an entire continent off the Bahamas before being engulfed by the Bermuda Triangle. Many readings regarding Atlantis were recorded between 1924 and 1944 by an American psychic by the name of Edgar Case, who claimed to be able to channel information about the lost metropolis, the Bahamas Bank, according to him, were the last piece of Atlantis to sink. A trail of energy crystals previously used to power the city was located here. He said that these electromagnetic energies were capable of interfering with the electronic systems of ships and aircrafts and making them disappear. Off the shore of the Bahama Islands, in the western part of the North Atlantic, divers found steps, walkways, walls, and even pyramids deep down into the ocean. In a series of expeditions that started in 1968, professional diver Dr. Ray Brown, a nautiropathic practitioner from Mesa, found what he believed to be an underwater Atlantean metropolis in the region known as the Bermuda Triangle. 
He and his men were looking for sunken Spanish galleons nearby Bimini in the hopes of discovering hidden wealth. On one of the many dives, Brown and four other divers found themselves trapped in an incredibly strong tropical storm that tore apart their boat and mixed up the sand on the ocean floor. They consequently came across the ruins of a sizable underwater metropolis. When Brown glanced up at one point, he saw the sunshine piercing the water and shining on what appeared to be a massive pyramid constructed of extremely polished stone. Its surface was so smooth that it resembled a mirror. He discovered that it was constructed from a blue stone that resembled lapis lazuli upon closer inspection. Lapis lazuli is thought to defend against psychic attacks, bring about profound calm and harmony, and expose inner truths, honesty, and compassion. It also promotes self-awareness and self-expression. Lapis lazuli is revered as the wisdom stone because of its healing properties. With its strikingly beautiful blue coloring, it was a favorite of the Egyptian pharaohs thousands of years ago. Brown spotted an opening into the blue shining chamber, and once inside, he discovered himself in a square room with a peaked ceiling. A two-inch diameter, gold-colored metallic rod with a pedestal underneath it had upward-facing metallic hands hung straight down from the ceiling. A crystal sphere in flawless shape was in their hands. There were seven extremely sizable stone chairs circling the pedestal. Brown realized he was running out of breath and that his time was running out. He attempted to move the golden rod but was unable, but he was able to get a hold of the crystal sphere. He may have sensed a menacing presence in the chamber at the same moment and heard a voice arguing him to go and never come back. Heeding the advice, he never went back to the spot where he had discovered it. But, regrettably, the other four divers did, and one by one, they drowned. Did Brown's work prove the existence of Atlantis? Not only that, did it prove a connection between the lost city and the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle? Could the very existence of the Enigma Metropolis, the Bahamas Bank, according to him, were the last piece of Atlantis to sink? A trail of energy crystals previously used to power the city was located here. He said that these electromagnetic energies were capable of interfering with the electronic systems of ships and aircrafts and making them disappear. Off the shore of the Bahama Islands, in the western part of the North Atlantic, divers found steps, walkways, walls, and even pyramids deep down into the ocean. In a series of expeditions that started in 1968, professional diver Dr. Ray Brown, a nauteropathic practitioner from Mesa, found what he believed to be an underwater Atlantean metropolis in the region known as the Bermuda Triangle. He and his men were looking for sunken Spanish galleons nearby Bimini in the hopes of discovering hidden wealth. On one of the many dives, Brown and four other divers found themselves trapped in an incredibly strong tropical storm that tore apart their boat and mixed up the sand on the ocean floor. They consequently came across the ruins of a sizable underwater metropolis. When Brown glanced up at one point, he saw the sunshine piercing the water and shining on what appeared to be a massive pyramid constructed of extremely polished stone. Its surface was so smooth that it resembled a mirror. He discovered that it was constructed from a blue stone that resembled lapis lazuli upon closer inspection. Lapis lazuli is thought to defend against psychic attacks, bring about profound calm and harmony, and expose inner truths, honesty, and compassion. It also promotes self-awareness and self-expression. 
Lapis Lazuli is revered as the Wisdom Stone because of its healing properties. With its strikingly beautiful blue coloring, it was a favorite of the Egyptian pharaohs thousands of years ago. Brown spotted an opening into the blue shining chamber, and once inside, he discovered himself in a square room with a peaked ceiling. A two-inch diameter, gold-colored metallic rod with a pedestal of fairness and self-expression. Lapis Lazuli is revered as the Wisdom Stone because of its healing properties. With its strikingly beautiful blue coloring, it was a favorite of the Egyptian pharaohs thousands of years ago. Brown spotted an opening into the blue shining chamber, and once inside, he discovered himself in a square room with a peaked ceiling. A two-inch diameter, gold-colored metallic rod with a pedestal underneath it had upward-facing metallic hands hung straight down the Bermuda Triangle. Several academics believe that this utopian kingdom formally covered an entire continent off the Bahamas before being engulfed by the Bermuda Triangle. Many readings regarding Atlantis were recorded between 1924 and 1944 by an American psychic by the name of Edgar Case, who claimed to be able to channel information about the lost metropolis. The Bahamas Bank, according to him, were the last piece of Atlantis to sink. A trail of energy crystals previously used to power the city was located here. He said that these electromagnetic energies were capable of interfering with the electronic systems of ships and aircrafts and making them disappear. Off the shore of the Bahama Islands, in the western part of the North Atlantic, divers found steps, walkways, walls, and even pyramids deep down into the ocean. In a series of expeditions that started in 1968, professional diver Dr. Ray Brown, a nautiropathic practitioner from Mesa, found what he believed to be an underwater Atlantean metropolis in the region known as the Bermuda Triangle. He and his men were looking for sunken Spanish galleons nearby Bimini in the hopes of discovering hidden wealth. On one of the many dives, Brown and four other divers found themselves trapped in an incredibly strong tropical storm that tore apart their boat and mixed up the sand on the ocean floor. They consequently came across the ruins of a sizable underwater metropolis. When Brown glanced up at one point, he saw the sunshine piercing the water and shining on what appeared to be a massive pyramid constructed of extremely polished stone. Its surface was so smooth that it resembled a mirror. He discovered that it was constructed from a blue stone that resembled lapis lazuli upon closer inspection. Lapis lazuli is thought to defend against psychic attacks, bring about profound calm and harmony, and expose inner truths, honesty, and compassion. It also promotes self-awareness and self-expression. Lapis lazuli is revered as the wisdom stone because of its healing properties. With its strikingly beautiful blue coloring, it was a favorite of the Egyptian pharaohs thousands of years ago. Brown spotted an opening into the blue shining <laughs> chamber, and once inside, he discovered himself in a square room with a peaked <laughs> ceiling. A two-inch diameter, gold-colored metallic rod with a pedestal underneath it had upward-facing metallic hands hung straight down from the ceiling. A crystal sphere in flawless shape was in their hands. There were seven extremely sizable stone chairs circling the pedestal. Brown realized he was running out of breath and that his time was running out. He attempted to move the golden rod but was unable, but he was able to get a hold of the crystal sphere. He may have sensed a menacing presence in the chamber at the same moment and heard a voice arguing him to go and never come back. Heeding the advice, he never went back to the spot where he had discovered it. But, regrettably, the other four divers did, 
and one by one, they drowned. Did Brown's work prove the existence of Atlantis? Not only that, did it prove a connection between the lost city and the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle? Could the very existence of the Enigma have spawned from the greed and eventual punishment of the Atlanteans? He, it says he neglected to tell you that the search and these mysterious me. crystal pyramid hairstyles in ancient Egypt were one of the many ways the Egyptians distinguished themselves as a distinctively African civilization. Of the numerous hairstyles donned by the men of Kemet, the most popular by far was the short twist. Egyptologists, for obvious reasons, have often speculated that this hairstyle was a wig emulating Kushite hair, but this has never been substantiated by any evidence. In reality, it is well known that this is a popular hairstyle that permeated continental Africa. Bronze artworks from Benin illustrate the commonality of the short twist being worn in similar concentric rows on various depictions. A variation of this style can be found amongst the Afar men of Ethiopia, where the twists are also substantially lengthened. This style is also reflected in Kemetic artwork, but by far the most notable example of this style was captured contemporaneously by Roman artists, exquisite bronze busts portraying the distinctly African appearance of the ancient Egyptians. Hairstyles in ancient Egypt were one of the many ways the Egyptians distinguished themselves as a distinctively African civilization. Of the numerous hairstyles donned by the men of Kemet, the most popular by far was the short twist. Egyptologists, for obvious reasons, have often speculated that this hairstyle was a wig emulating Kushite hair. But this has never been substantiated by any evidence. In reality, six million jewels. Hairstyles in ancient Egypt were one of the many ways the Egyptians distinguished themselves as a distinctively African civilization. Of the numerous hairstyles donned by the men of Kemet, the most popular by far was the short twist. Egyptologists, for obvious reasons, have often speculated that this hairstyle was a wig emulating Kushite hair. This has never been substantiated by any evidence. In reality, it is well known that this is a popular hairstyle that permeated continental Africa. Bronze artworks from Benin illustrate the commonality of the short twist being worn in similar concentric rows on various depictions. A variation of this style can be found amongst the Afar men of Ethiopia, where the twists are also substantially lengthened. This style is also reflected in Kemetic artwork. But by far the most notable That's example cool. of this time. Six million Jews died. They write and write and write about it. They make movies about it. Nobody is supposed to forget about it in the world. Everybody is reminded every day how this atrocity happened to them. But we, you know, the Bengal famine killed over three and a half million people in a matter of three months because they took away all the food for the World War II effort. And this is not one. From 1800 to 1860, in 60 years' time, an industry which has lasted for 10,000 years, they destroyed and left millions of people to die. It's recorded in British history and, uh, you know, in what they have written, not what we have written, because we write nothing. If we get our breakfast tomorrow, we're just happy. <laughs> There's a big problem in India because we don't have a sense of history. We should not resent our history and develop uh, animosity towards somebody. But at the same time, it's stupid to forget everything and go on as if nothing happened. That would be absolutely stupid. That's a problem with us. See, in this country, what has happened in those 200 years? It is not a small thing. Six million Jews died. 
They write and write and write about it. I am your mother. Is it possible that in the future we'll be able to see past 13.8 billion years? Not with light. Not with because light. Because what... The, the picture is that before, it, it actually was released 380,000 years after the Big Bang. It's a very precise number. You might say, how do you know that? Well, before that time, the universe was so hot that atoms couldn't form. So you had a soup of electrically charged particles. It was just too hot for electrons to go into orbit around nuclei. So the universe was opaque to light. So you just couldn't... It's like one, almost like a big glowing star. Like. And then when it was expanding, it cooled past the point where the atoms could form. And at that point, it becomes transparent, really almost instantly in a cosmic timescale. And so the light could then travel in straight lines through the universe. And we can see that light. So we see the light from that time. But further back than that, it's opaque. So you can't see past that. Is it possible that in the future we'll be able to see past 13.8 billion years? Not with light. Not with because light. Because the, the picture is that before, it's, it's actually was released 380,000 years after the Big Bang. It's a very precise number. You might say, how do you know that? Well, before that time, the universe was so hot that atoms couldn't form. So you had a soup of electrically charged particles. It was just too hot for electrons to go into orbit around nuclei. So the universe was opaque to light. So you just couldn't... It's like one... Almost like a big glowing star, if you like. And then when it is expanding, it cools past hey, the point where the atoms stay. Perform. And at that point, it becomes transparent, really almost instantly in a cosmic time. And so the light could then travel in straight lines through the universe. And we can stay. see that light. So we see the light from that time, but further back than that. It's Wait, no, light, sit. So we can't see sit. past that. Day. Is it possible that in the future we'll be able to see past 13.8 billion years? Not with light. Not with because light. Because the, the picture is that before, it, it actually was released 380,000 years after the Big Bang. It's a very precise number. You might say, how do you know that? Well, before that time, the universe was so hot that atoms couldn't form. So you had a soup of electrically charged particles. It was just too hot for electrons to go into orbit around nuclei. So the universe was opaque to light. So you just couldn't, it's like one, almost like a big glowing star. And then when it was expanding, it cooled past the point where the atoms could form. And at that point, it becomes transparent, really almost instantly in a cosmic timescale. And so the light could then travel in straight lines through the universe. And we can see that light. So we see the light from that time. But further back than that, it's opaque. So you can't see past that. Is it possible that in the future we'll be able to see past 13.8 billion years? Not with light. Not with because light. Because the, the picture is that before... ...councils that were formed, like the one is the Council of Nicaea, who then started analyzing a lot of these copied and recopied and recopied and recopied and recopied texts, and started analyzing which ones to keep and which ones to keep out, which ones to keep. They were thinking, let's make this into an actual canonized book. We'll take this and put that in here. We'll take this. This one, no, that talks about aliens. We don't want these. We don't want the book of Enoch in here because he's talking about aliens. Let's leave that one out. We don't want the myth of Adapa in here because he's talking about aliens. We don't want that in here. That's the book of Adam. We don't want that in here. So you have all these apocryphal texts that were kept out. And the Council of Nicaea coordinate and create this, this hodgepodge of a, of a book based on his content curated content that they wanted that would allow them to still have control of the That's how you get to the canon today that the majority of religious people read around the world. Councils of reform, like for one is the Council of Nicaea, who then started analyzing a lot of these copied and recopied and recopied and recopied and recopied 
text and started analyzing which ones to keep and which ones to keep out. Which ones to keep, they were thinking, let's make this into an actual canonized book. We'll take this and put that in here. If you want to know the identity of Gog and Magog, watch this video, this is part two. I showed you in part one that Gog is a person and Magog is a place. Figure 38, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Y'all, we learned that Gog is the ruler or chief prince of three provinces, Meshach, Tubal, and Magog. Now, most people put these three nations in Russia, but I'm going to show you why they are dead wrong. Now, Meshach and Tubal are the sons of Japheth, which is the third son of Noah. These sons of Japheth, Meshach and Tubal, did not migrate into Russia, but they migrated into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. If you need to, pause the video right here, because the sons of Japheth, Magog, Meshach, and Tubal, were all located in Asia Minor or Turkey. So if Gog is the chief prince of Meshach, Tubal, and Magog, that means he is the chief prince or ruler of Turkey. Y'all, this traded the game. If you want to know why Gog is the ruler of Turkey, follow for part two. If you want to know the identity of Gog and Magog, watch this video. This is part two. I showed you in part one that Gog is a person and Magog is a place. Ezekiel 38, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Y'all, we learned that Gog is the ruler or chief prince of three provinces, Meshach, Tubal, and Magog. Now, most people put these three nations in Russia, but I'm going to show you why they are dead wrong. Now, Meshach and Tubal are the sons of Japheth, which is the third son of Noah. These sons of Japheth, Meshach and Tubal, did not migrate into Russia, but they migrated into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. If you need to, pause the video right here, because the sons of Japheth, Magog, Meshach, and Tubal, were all located in Asia Minor or Turkey. So if Gog is the chief prince of Meshach, Tubal, and Magog, that means he is the chief prince or ruler of Turkey. Y'all, this changes the game. If you want to know why Gog is the ruler of Turkey, follow for part two. If you want to know the identity of Gog and Magog, watch this video. This is part two. I showed you in part one that Gog... When you mix sawdust and water together and freeze it down, you create something called Pycrete. Pycrete is so strong that the government at one point was considering making an aircraft carrier out of it. So I figured it would be a great material to experiment with to build the ultimate winter survival shelter that just happens to be bulletproof. The first step is to combine the ingredients. For this mixture, 14% of the weight will be sawdust and the other 86% will be water. Be sure to spray your buckets with some type of lubricant so you can easily get the ice out. The second step is to let the mixture freeze. I let these buckets sit outside in minus 35 weather for a couple weeks to be sure they were frozen solid. We then took all 36 buckets of pie tree out into the forest and we started assembling the shelter. We stacked them up three cubes high all around. Then we filled in the gaps with some sawdust mortar. We cut down some dead trees, made a roof, set up our stove inside to keep nice and warm. Now we're going to spend the night in here and tomorrow we're going to see how bulletproof it is. Stay tuned for part two. If you mix sawdust and water together and freeze it down, you create something freeze called pycrete. Pycrete is so strong that the government at one point was considering making an aircraft carrier out of it. So I figured it would be a great material to experiment with to build the ultimate winter survival shelter that just happens to be bulletproof. The first step is to combine the ingredients. For this mixture, 14% of the weight will be sawdust and the other 86% will be water. Be sure to spray your buckets with some type of lubricant so you can easily get the ice out. The second step is to let the mixture freeze. 
I let these buckets sit outside in minus 35 weather for a couple weeks and be sure they were frozen solid. We then took all 36 buckets of pyrecrete out into the forest and we started assembling the shelter. We stacked them up three cubes high all around. Then we filled in the gaps with some sawdust mortar. We cut down some dead trees, made a roof, set up our stove inside to keep nice and warm. Now we're going to spend the night in here and tomorrow we're going to see how bulletproof it is. Stay tuned for part two. When you mix sawdust and water together and freeze it down, you create Pretty something cool. called pycrete. Pycrete is Canadian prepper. <laughs> the tomb of Tutankhamun still remains the world's greatest ever archaeological find. There was 5,000 priceless items found within the tomb. Amongst the items were these chairs. Each item was carefully engraved in gold leaf. To this date, it is the only tomb to ever have been found fully complete. What you're looking at here is the gilded shrine for the Knuckle Jars. The Knuckle Jars, which you see here, are made of alabaster. And these jars contain the organs of the pharaoh or deceased. This is also one of the chairs found within the tomb, known as the victory chair. But perhaps what's more interesting that goes with this chair is the footrest. You see these figures being depicted where the pharaoh placed his feet to show that his enemies are beneath him. Unfortunately, I couldn't film all the treasures of Tutankhamun, as you're not allowed to, but I did manage to sneak a very quick shot of the golden mask. The tomb of Tutankhamun still remains the world's greatest ever archaeological find. There was 5,000 priceless items found within the tomb. Amongst the items were these chairs. Each item was carefully engraved and gold leaf. To this date, it is the only tomb to ever have been found fully complete. What you're looking at here is the gilded shrine for the Knuckle Jars. The Knuckle Jars, which you see here, are made of alabaster. And these jars contain the organs of the pharaoh or deceased. This is also one of the chairs found within the tomb, known as the victory chair. But perhaps what's more interesting that goes with this chair is the footrest. You see these figures being depicted where the pharaoh placed his feet to show that his enemies are beneath him. Unfortunately, I couldn't film all the treasures of Tutankhamun, as you're not allowed to, but I did manage to sneak a very quick shot of the golden mask. The tomb of Tutankhamun still remains the world's greatest. Close up of some of the carvings on the Cortinacchio sarcophagus. It was the sarcophagus of a high-ranking Roman soldier who served under Marcus Aurelius. The ceiling of the 2,000-years-old hypostyle called the Temple of Hathor in Vendera, Egypt. Ancient sense of humor. Greek means flimbold, inscribed with dextrile, meaning in Greek cash, 1,500 years old. Ancient polyhedron inscribed with letters of the Greek alphabet, possible use for fortune telling. Roman, possibly Greek, 2nd to 3rd century AD. Golden signet ring of the priests the enemy. Egypt, 26th dynasty, 664 to 525 BC. Harbing of a woolly mammoth in the excavations collected from Bogovic Cave, 33,000 BC. The hint of the dagger, late Neolithic dagger period, circa 1900 to 1700 BC, Denmark, 29.5 cm long and barely 2 cm thick. It is widely recognized as the most beautiful example of Neolithic flint mappings in Denmark. Those up of some of the carvings on the Cortinaccio sarcophagus. It was the sarcophagus of a high-ranking Roman soldier who served under Marcus Aurelius. The ceiling of the 2,000-year-old hypostyle hall of the Temple of Hathor in Vendera, Egypt. 
ancient sense of humor. Great blue slim bullet inscribed with death sign, meaning in Greek cash, 1600 years old. Bones polyhedron inscribed with letters of the Greek alphabet, possibly used for fortune telling. Roman, possibly Greek, second to third century AD. Golden signet ring of the priest to enemies. Egypt, 26th dynasty, 664 to 525 BC. Carving of a woolly mammoth in the excavations collected from Bogovic Cave, 33,000 BC. The hymns of the dagger, late Neolithic dagger period, circa 1900 to 1700 BC, Denmark, 29.5 centimeters long and there. Suppose the difference between humans and chimps is as small as a half a percent DNA in the intelligence vector, whatever that vector is. Suppose it is that small. What do you say? Well, what do you mean? We have the Hubble telescope and poetry and philosophy, and they stick a twig in a hole to get termites out. Maybe the difference between those is small. You don't want to think that way, but imagine it. So now let's imagine an alien who is 5% along that same vector beyond us that we are beyond the chimp. What would we look like to them? No reason for me to think that we wouldn't look any different to them than chimps look to us. And that's a half a percent. So now imagine 5%, 10%. Their simplest expression of an idea would transcend our smartest capacity to comprehend Suppose the difference between humans and chimps is as small as a half a percent DNA in the intelligence vector, whatever that vector is. Suppose it is that small. What do you say? Well, what do you mean? We have the Hubble telescope and poetry and philosophy, and they stick a twig in a hole to get termites out. Maybe the difference between those is small. You don't want to think that way, but imagine it. So now let's imagine an alien. Archaeologists have routinely ignored all pictorial evidence and numerous eyewitness descriptions of the ancient Egyptians in favor of politically motivated choices regarding phenotype and skin color. This reconstruction of King Tut does what is seemingly obvious and gives the portraits and artworks primary authority in terms of his appearance. They exhibit a previously unseen continuity and consistency between multiple representations and seem to show an affinity to the remains of his mummy. We already know what he looked like as King Tut's artworks are all phenotypically consistent with modern Nilotic East Africans. This is something also made evident by his mummy, which is almost stereotypically Nilotic. Forensic facial reconstruction has been proven to be inaccurate and agenda-driven in isolation. So this, in actuality, is the most scientifically sound reproduction of the boy king. Share this with someone who'd benefit. Subscribe for more of the same. King Mono. Archaeologists have routinely ignored all pictorial evidence and numerous eyewitness descriptions of the ancient Egyptians in favor of politically motivated choices regarding phenotype and skin color. This reconstruction of King Tut does what is seemingly obvious and gives the portraits and artworks primary authority in terms of his appearance. They exhibit a previously unseen continuity and consistency between multiple representations and seem to show an affinity to the remains of his mummy. We already know what he looked like as King Tut's artworks are all phenotypically consistent with modern Nilotic East Africans. This is something also made evident by his mummy, which is almost stereotypically Nilotic. Forensic facial reconstruction has been proven to be inaccurate and agenda-driven in isolation. So this, in actuality, is the most scientifically sound reproduction of the Boy King. Share this with someone who'd benefit. Subscribe for more of the same. Hi, 
Here's some freaky facts about the Victorian era. First off, yes, fashionable men and women did have tattoos. Sometimes a lot of them. In fact, it was kind of a royal obsession. You can see Tsar Nicholas II's dragon tattoo here, and his cousin George V also had one. And let's not even talk about how nipple piercings were a thing. The Victorian period was also the height of Egyptomania, which led to some pretty weird behavior. Rich people visiting Egypt would actually buy mummies to bring back home as souvenirs. They then had mummy unwrapping parties with all their friends. Victorians loved this shade of green. There was just one problem. It was made from arsenic. It was widely used in dresses, wallpaper, and even candy coatings. And they really only stopped when they realized people were dying by the pound. Victorians sent valentines just like we do. But they also had vinegar valentines, which were basically insult cards they sent to people they hated. Huge crinolines were all the rage. But they were also extremely flammable in ballrooms with like candlelight. Writer Oscar Wilde's half-sisters actually died this way, along with thousands of other women. And the Thames was so full of sewage, there was a great stink of 1858. Here's some freaky facts about the Victorian era. First off, yes, fashionable men and women did have tattoos. Sometimes a lot of them. In fact, it was kind of a royal obsession. You can see Sir Nicholas II's dragon tattoo here, and his cousin George V also had one. And let's not even talk about how nipple piercings were a thing. The Victorian period was also the height of Egyptomania, which led to some pretty weird behavior. Rich people visiting Egypt would actually buy mummies to bring back home as souvenirs. They then had mummy unwrapping parties with all their friends. Victorians loved this shade of green. There was just one problem. It was made from arsenic. It was widely used in dresses, wallpaper, and even candy coatings. And they really It's the same divide and conquer tactic that's been going on for eons. We also implement that in our educational system, whether it's religious education, scientific education. The reason why I love spirituality is because it takes a look at both. Mm. It takes okay. a look and says, you know what? There is only one divine spirit. There's only one consciousness. And the quantum physics explains how it works. Mm. When you look okay. at the quantum mechanics and quantum physics, you begin to see what's happening behind the veil. Okay. You begin to realize, oh, wow, this is pretty interesting. What we can see here is that the spirituality that is being explained by quantum physics and quantum mechanics, and it also is explaining our, our, our state of reality that we're experiencing in this third dimension in this corporeal body. People don't have the time to dig into that, to research that, to study and learn it. That's why I do a lot of workshops and classes on that exact topic, to teach people that you're spiritual. And let me show you the science behind the spirituality. Let me show you how it works. It's the same divide and conquer tactic that's been going on for eons. Y'all, this is the truth about Mystery Babylon the Great, according to the book of Revelation. Revelation describes a woman sitting on a beast with ten horns and seven heads. This woman is described as wearing purple, scarlet, and is adorned in many precious stones. She is said to hold a cup in her hand filled with the abominations of the earth. She even has a name written on her forehead which says Babylon the Great, Mother of Abominations. Now this is important to note that this is one of the few times in the Bible where the word says that this is a full-blown mystery. However, the purple and scarlet she wears is an indication from other verses that she is of royal descent. And the gold and the precious stone she wears is an indication of her economic power. Y'all, remember that golden cup? She is literally intoxicated off the blood of the saints. And what makes things even more interesting is the angel says this woman is representing a city. It is a rich, royal city that has persecuted God's people throughout history. And guess what? You're going to be mad at me, but it is not the city of Rome. Fall of the part two. 
Oh, this is the truth about Mystery Babylon the Great, according to the Book of Revelation. Revelation describes a woman sitting on a beast with ten horns and seven heads. This woman is described as wearing purple, scarlet, and is adorned in many precious stones. She is said to hold a cup in her hand filled with the abominations of the earth. She even has a name written on her forehead which says Babylon the Great, Mother of Abominations. Now, this is important to note that this is one of the few times in the Bible where the word says that this is a full-blown mystery. However, the purple and scarlet she wears is an indication from other verses that she is of royal descent. And the gold and the precious stone she wears is an indication of her economic power. Y'all remember that golden cup? She is literally intoxicated of the blood of the saints. And what makes things even more interesting is the angel says this woman is representing a city. It is a rich, royal city that has persecuted God's people throughout history. And guess what? You're going to be mad at me, but it is not the city of Rome. Fall for part two. My passenger is getting arrested. No, I'll keep recording. Thank you. It's my right. I, I will look. You're a police officer on duty. I can record you. I can keep recording you. For recording you, I'm sitting in my car holding my phone. What what is the law? What are you what are you arresting me for? I'm sitting here in my car. I'm just recording in case anything happens. I'm surrounded by five police officers. I'm scared right now. I'm not being a jerk. I want to. I'm recording it in case anything happens. They're not searching my car. You're not searching my car. Bring the canines. I don't care, man. Like, I know my rights. I know the law. I'm an attorney, so I would hope I know the law. And here, man. Do you want my bar card? My passenger is getting arrested. No, I'll keep recording. Thank you. It's my right. I, I will look. You're a police officer on duty. I can record you. I can keep recording you. For recording you, I'm sitting in my car holding my phone. What is the law? What are, you, what are you arresting me for? I'm sitting here in my car. I'm just recording in case... I found a strain. My passenger is getting arrested. Exclamation point. I found a strange circle of logs at the base of some cliffs on Google Earth. So, I got my girlfriend and my brother to join me on this adventure to see what this was. My brother here. This hike would be pretty difficult, and there wasn't really a set trail. We just kind of guessed as we went along. As we got closer to our destination, we saw a ruin. It's probably a granary. Nearby we saw some broken pottery. Someone made this pottery hundreds or even a thousand years ago. Up the canyon we could finally see that circle of logs. When we first saw it, it was clear that this was also a ruin and not just some random circle. This was probably someone's home or possibly even a kiva. I found a strange circle of logs at the base of some cliffs on Google Earth. So, I got my girlfriend and my brother to join me on this adventure to see what this was. My brother here. 
This hike would be pretty difficult, and there wasn't really a set trail. We just kind of guessed as we went along. As we got closer to our destination, we saw a ruin. It's probably a granary. Nearby we saw some broken pottery. Someone made this pottery hundreds or even a thousand years ago. Up the canyon we could finally see that circle of logs. When we first saw it, it was clear that this was also a ruin and not just some random circle. This was probably someone's home or possibly even a kiva. We found a strange circle of logs at the base of some... That most men live lives of quiet desperation. It's one of my favorite quotes ever because it's true. And I've been that guy. You just, you're just in this world where you just can't wait to just run away. And how do people get stuck there? Bills. Bills? Like financial yeah. things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Bills and commitment. You, you have an apartment you have to pay for. You have a car you leased. You have a wife that you have to feed. You have a child you have to raise. You have, to, yeah. you have your mortgage. You have your this. You have your that. And that's where it all comes from. The way you can change is you have to put aside enough money to give yourself a window. And then you have to have a plan, and you have to spend all your waking hours outside of whatever shit job you do planning your escape. And you have to come to the realization very clearly that you fucked up and you got yourself stuck. So whatever you're doing, you have to do it like your life depends on it. Whatever time that you have, you have to attack like you're trying to save the world. That most men live lives of quiet desperation. It's one of my favorite quotes ever because it's we came to this site at least i did for the first time a few years back and the trip was a midnight boat ride in and i happened to come across this carving here which is amazing and it made me ecstatic because this symbol it shows a happy the deity of the nile and so much fertility encircled by a serpent 